What's going on, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and this is episode 97 of the Adult Education Podcast. Now, this week, I'm speaking with speech pathologist, writer, and Harvard lecturer, Rebecca Rowland. Thanks for hanging out today. I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to check out the show. Adult Education is a fun project for me that I do out of the love of conversation and learning. If you want to support me or the show, the best way to do it is to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, if you like what you hear in today's episode, please share it with your friends, whether that's by telling people to listen or sharing it via social media. Please let the word spread about adult education. So I'm that dad, the dad that you see in stores talking to his toddler about everything, even though you know that that kid can't understand anything that he's saying. I may look crazy to you, but there's a method to my madness. Well, I mean, it kind of turns out that there is. Honestly, I just get bored and want to talk with someone, so I talk to my daughter. Those conversations are super important to her growth. I'm so pleased to introduce you to Rebecca Rowland. She's a speech pathologist, writer, and Harvard lecturer. She recently published a book called The Art of Talking with Children. Now, in there, she talks about the science that has proven the benefits of talking with our kids. The evidence-based guide shows that a great conversation can have so many benefits from helping kids and adults connect better and also boosting children's learning and well-being. So I came across this book because Rebecca hit me up. She had heard one of my previous interviews and decided to reach out. I'm just so glad that she did that because this book is fantastic. It's not just for young children like mine. It dives into advice for engaging in rich talk with older kids all the way up to teens. And let's be honest, isn't the goal of every parent to have a strong connection with their child? This is one book that I'm going to be keeping on the bookshelf for years to come. So much valuable information here, and you're going to get a taste of that right now in my conversation with Rebecca Rowland. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? I am doing all right. I am getting sort of like a, it's almost like you've got a fan blowing on you. Oh, let me turn it off. One second. I'm Hold so on. sorry if that makes you hot. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. Let me, I can turn it off. I think it should be good. Yeah, there we go. Is that better? I, I think you're using an air conditioner that you have a tube that goes out the window. Is that one of the, my daughter has one of those in her bedroom. I know that sound very well. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Our building has air, AC, but it doesn't work very well. So this is, yeah, <laughs> this is what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Cause okay. you, you live, do you live in Boston proper? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. The buildings in there are not always retrofitted for AC. No, it's strange. Yeah, you'd think like, but there's a lot of like old stairs and old things. And yeah, so yeah, it's nice. It's beautiful, but it's definitely like, yeah, old school. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up, I don't know if you know this, I grew up about 30 minutes north of Boston. So uh, every time I go home and visit my family, especially in the summer, I'm always like, how do you guys live like this? Where is your air conditioning? Exactly. Yeah, it's so hot. Yeah, you'd be surprised because people are like, oh, it's Boston. It's not that hot. It's like, oh, no, it's can get pretty hot. (laughs) That's what I always say. I'm like, it's it's not that different. I live in Baltimore now, so I'm about eight hours south, seven or eight hours south. It, the weather is just warmer, longer here, but you get mm-hmm. just as hot in the Boston yeah. area and just as That's cold, better. you know, it's down cold. here. Yeah. It's just different lengths of time that you spend there. Definitely. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I spent some time in D.C. I don't know if it's similar, but yeah, the yeah. weather hot in summer yeah yeah dc is uh just about 30 minutes south of me 30 45 minutes south oh, of me so yeah it's pretty much the same thing they kind of lump us together which leaves mm-hmm. baltimore people always feeling like they've got a chip on their shoulder like hey we're yeah, something yeah. different you know <laughs> well i'm excited to talk to you rebecca thank you so much for reaching out to me um oh, yeah. thank you yeah, thanks for having it's really a pleasure I-, I do get a little bit of imposter syndrome talking to people like you though because it's not often I engage in conversation with Harvard ed- educators and I get very insecure about my own intelligence when I have these chats. 
Oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be. Trust me. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't mean, Harvard degree doesn't mean you know everything. For <laughs> not. Well, you're doing something right. And like I said, I grew up up that way. So, you know, Harvard holds another special piece of my heart just because I know I'm so familiar with the area. I'm so familiar with uh, what that institution means in the area. I was actually just up there. It feels like yesterday, but um, it was actually the very end of 2019. I flew up for a concert at a venue there called the Sinclair. Um, oh, I think I, yeah, I may have heard of it. I don't, I don't think I've been there, but yeah. Yeah. It's a little, I, I think it's a little restaurant music venue thing, but you know, funny story about that. Then I'll, then I'll start asking you about your book. Um, but, but I stayed in a hotel, uh, with a McDonald's that was right behind it. And I just had a really long travel day. It was just a crazy day. I didn't have enough time to eat dinner. So when the concert was over, I go to the hotel and I'm thinking, all right, I'll just pop in and grab a bite to eat. It's like 11 o'clock right. at night, not that late, but I guess for whatever reason, they were closed to people coming in the restaurant. I didn't have a car because I had flown in. So I had to go stand across the street and order like Uber eats from the restaurant that was 30 oh. feet away from me. <laughs> I felt so stupid, but I had no it's other so way of getting food. Right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I mean, Boston, sometimes it closes early too, which is also really bizarre. Like some things should be like, why is this closed? It's Sunday night. But yeah, I think it was a Sunday. I think that was it. I think it was a Sunday. So everything was a little bit earlier than usual. But anyway, I just was, I'm standing there at the hotel, just watching my Uber driver Roger, go in, yeah, grab so it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the guy like pulled in to drop it off and he was like, really? And like, I couldn't get in. I had yeah, no choice. <laughs> yeah, <was> so, <laughs> so how long have you been at Harvard? Um, it's been about seven years, actually. Yeah. So it's um, I think this is my seventh year. So I think there was a weird break because of the pandemic. But then I taught double at one point. So, yeah, it's been interesting because I, I got my degree there. So I got my doctorate there and I just started teaching after that. Um, so it's been like a whole you know, long process of being there for sure. Well, the book we're talking about today is called The Art of Talking with Children, The Simple Keys to Nurturing Kindness, Creativity, and Confidence in Kids. Tell me a little bit more about your degree and your background and how we get into this topic. Definitely, yeah. So I'm actually a speech-language pathologist. So I've studied um, actually how language and communication works, both with children and adults. And that, to me, brought me to this interest in sort of how we communicate in everyday talk. Um, I actually ended up getting my doctorate in education because I realized we just didn't actually know a lot. There wasn't a ton of research out there. At least I didn't know a lot about the research. So as I got my doctorate and studied more, I realized how much was being done um, in terms of conversation. And then as a parent, though, I realized I was often on autopilot. So I wasn't actually making use of what I knew. Uh, so even though you know you can know a lot, but then in your own life, it can be harder to apply and harder to feel like you're you know what you're doing. So I think uh, for me, that was something that struck me as intriguing and made me want to write more about it. I was reading the introduction to your book and I kept thinking I should have my wife do this interview because my wife is a reading teacher uh, specifically yeah. for children in middle school age with learning disabilities. So, oh, yeah. you know, she's done a lot of work along the same lines that you've done in your career. And I'm just reading like my wife could probably ask much better questions than I can. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it's actually it's like there's so many. Uh, people out there, I think, who have these backgrounds that like have so much wealth of knowledge. So that's great. Yeah. One thing that we don't, and you know, I feel like I've been hearing about it more now, especially because I'm a parent. But I, I don't feel like people talk about the importance of talking to your children. You always see and hear about parents that are trying to almost like you know, I don't want to say shush their kid, but you know, it's like hey, leave me alone for a second. I'm doing something. But but that that conversation that you have with those kids is so important in helping them develop many different aspects of their brain and their life. 
Exactly. Yes. And I think so often we focus on sort of the negative side, which makes sense. Like we want to fix the tantrum or we want to make kids behave. And, and of course we do want to do that. I'm not saying that's not worth focusing on, but I noticed that there was kind of a big gap. So we we're doing a lot of that, but then in terms of, well, what do we do on the positive side? What do we actually do to help stretch kids? You know, when they're not having a tantrum, they're not, you know, whatever they're, how can we actually help them build their imagination, their creativity and so on. So that's really what I was striving to do with the book. I think it was a conversation I had with Julie Bogart um, and we were talking about critical thinking because she just published a book not too long ago about uh, engaging in critical thinking with children. And, and we, you know, we kind of went back and forth on a couple subjects, but I had never really thought about the idea of letting the child work things out, you know, like even because I, I pushed her on at what point do we do we say, OK, well, where this child is going with their conversation is clearly wrong. You know, say they're trying to argue with me, the earth is flat. We all know scientifically that is wrong, but there is something to be said about letting them work it out with you and asking them questions about, well, why do you think that? Where did you get that information? Like, and, and having that conversation to engage with them and let their brains work that way. Definitely. Yes, it's actually funny because I was speaking with a parent recently who was using some of these strategies and they said, oh, it's so funny for the first time they could hear, quote unquote, hear their daughter's wheels turning, yeah. you know, so actually like talking through, she was like, oh, I think it might be this, but I might, you know, I wonder if it's this. And then actually that process of actually talking through and getting some scaffolding or some help and talking it through is so powerful for kids and actually so much more powerful than just saying, no, it's not. You know, here's the right answer. You know, you really kind of don't allow them to do that stretching process. And it's important even when the child is very young, too, right? I mean, like my daughter is 18 months old, so she's not forming sentences or at least not ones that I can fully understand. In her mind, I'm sure they make perfect sense. But, you know, she's trying to communicate. But even with those much younger children that can't vocalize their feelings, it's still important to have those conversations. Definitely, yes. And we notice that kids are learning so much even from the models that we're giving them. So if you're, you know, even if a child is even younger than that, isn't talking at all, you know, still being able to model, you know, how are you thinking through things? You know, maybe like, oh, I think it's raining outside. I think I'll take an umbrella, you know, this kind of thing, rather than just silently picking up your umbrella. So actually having kids hear your thought processes, even when things are frustrating, hear like, oh, that didn't work out how I thought it would have, you know, let me try something else. That's actually so powerful as building that foundation for a child and even building the bond between you because now they feel like, oh, I understand more about my parent or caregiver. I, I'm. It's funny to me because I think I'm that crazy person in grocery stores when I take my daughter to the store with me because I, I walk her through everything that we do. And I, I don't even really do it thinking about these processes that we're talking about today, but just almost just to have someone to talk to while I'm shopping for groceries, but it's the little <laughs> things. I'm like, no, we don't need, like she'll reach for some, like, no, we don't need lavender soap today. We're just here to get some eggs because we have to make, and I'm like mapping, I'm, I'm sure people walking by are thinking, what is this guy doing? <laughs> it's so funny, but actually, yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Cause I think that builds so much. It's not just language skills, but even just the feeling that she's now understanding. It's not just like, you're treating her you know as someone with a mind which i think is actually really important for kids to develop that sense of like self and self-esteem of like oh i actually there's a reason i wanted this maybe i can't have it but you're acknowledging like oh yeah there's that's lavender soap like we don't need that you know rather than just like no and you take it away you know there's so much more that you're building with that so even if it sounds crazy i think yeah go for it <laughs> i noticed it yesterday for the first time and again it's probably because i've been learning more about all of this stuff and reading through your book, especially. But when I, it was the lavender soap example specifically, I told her that and she looked at me and almost did one of those like, huh, okay. You know, you can tell like she, she figured, she's like, yeah, you're right. I don't need that for dinner tonight. You know, it was so funny. Like you said, to see the wheels turning in her mind. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. And I think too, just to realize, you know, sometimes kids obviously have tantrums for any number of reasons, but sometimes the tantrums are because they feel like, oh, they're not being heard. They're not being understood. So it's like, if you ignore that, then maybe she'll reach for something else or some other candy or something else. It's like, I just want you to engage with me, you know? And so if, you know, by having those kind of conversations about something really minor can actually prevent kind of an escalation of quote unquote behavior because she's actually feels like she's having a conversation with you. You say engage, that's, a, that's an interesting word. And there's a fine line because when you have younger children, the engagement or the need for engagement may result in them having a tantrum because they're they're lashing out to try to get you to engage with them. But as kids get a little bit older to those tween teen years, they may react differently. They may react the opposite way. They may go inward as opposed to going outward with the tantrum. That's, that's an interesting line to try to, to fall on. Definitely, yes. And I think one thing I found really challenging is that a lot of times our initial reaction when kids are shutting down or quieter is to kind of probe, you know, to say like, well, let's see what's going on with you or what's, what do you think is happening? Or let's ask more questions, let's, you know, and sort of drill down into that. And sometimes that results in kids retreating even more, you know, because they don't want to finger point it at that. They don't, you know, that might be something sensitive for them. Um, and so I often found that it's helpful sometimes to just even start by pulling back and do an activity kind of that's quiet together, that's kind of meditative, it might be playing basketball or, you know, going for a drive or something, and just allowing a little bit of silence and a little bit of downtime as kind of a foundation. Because I think sometimes kids of that age do feel a little bit like, oh, I don't want you to, you know, pinpoint that and try to drill down into my thought processes or something like that. Yeah, I feel like your typical scene for that happening would be, say, the family's at a dinner table and you realize the teen is not having a great day, so you start probing all these questions. But maybe that's not a safe space for them. Maybe to them they'd rather have a one-on-one -on -one conversation or they'd rather just kind of, like, burn off some steam first and then feel comfortable sharing that. So, yeah, you're right, like, putting them in a different activity, letting them kind of get their thoughts together and then say, all right, I'm ready for this. Right, exactly. And I think actually what's funny is so many people have said to me when I've talked about this is like they found it so helpful if a child, especially of that age, can teach you something or be the leader in something initially. So say like, oh, they're playing basketball and it's like, oh, I'm going to show you how to do this shot, you know, and it's, sort of, it's so low key. It doesn't it's not about, you know, let me talk about your innermost feelings. It's something that's almost very surface level, but it makes room for those deeper conversations. So I think there's a, a lot of um, room for that rather than necessarily just starting with the conversation. One thing I always said, the second that I found out I was gonna be a parent, and I'm not saying that I grew up in a bad situation by any means, my parents were fantastic, they did their best, but we we did not have a super open communication type family. You know, we didn't have those hard conversations. We didn't have, you just kind of kept things to yourself kind of thing. And I think a lot of families are like that. But I said, I was like, I wanna make sure that we are at least an open communication family. I know my kid is going to lie to me, but I hope they at least come to me about the serious stuff. You know, li lie to me about something stupid. I don't care about that. But like, <laughs> at least feel comfortable to come to me when you're having like a really hard situation. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what's so important is just to set that foundation that, that lying, that all the stuff, you know, you can actually take time and use that as a learning experience, even though it sounds, maybe it sounds odd, but just to say, okay, you know, smaller things. Like if some, if your child lies about something that's really small, you know, talk through maybe why it wasn't that important to lie about it or why, you know, it didn't need to be a lie. You know, you could have just told me and then this kind of thing, like let's resolve it anyway, you know, rather than blowing up. So I think if we can set that foundation that if we're not gonna blow up about the lie itself, but just resolve the situation, I think that can actually set the stage for like, oh, maybe I don't need to lie about these bigger things. You know, my parent is not going to 
get incredibly upset if I tell them something, you know, and that kind of thing. So I think that is really important to start small. It's so easy for us as parents to brush off our kids. Like, you know, like, oh, I don't have time for you, or I've had a long day, I don't really need this right now. It's so easy for us to do that. But just putting the little extra effort in to open that door is so important for them, not even just as a child, but growing up and becoming an adult, you know, because as adults, we think we know everything. So we think it's so like when, when the child is coming to us with an issue, we're like, oh, this stupid thing, like, oh, they'll forget about this. But for them, it's a brand new thing. And for them, it's so important. So if we brush it off, we start to slowly close that door inch by inch, and then eventually it's going to be locked and we're not going to be able to get through it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it's so funny that like it's sometimes the smallest things that seem to us even laughable. I mean, I remember my daughter, she's actually very, very cautious as a child, like very not risk taking. And so it wasn't until she was sort of five or six, I think, that she had an actual paper cut. So she had cut her finger and there was blood, you know, it was very small, very, very minor. And she just got so upset. And I was like, I, it's a paper cut. Like it's, you know, really, you know, but then like, I realized she was not even upset about the pain or whatever, but it was just like, she had never seen her own blood before. And so she, that to her was like, oh my goodness, it's red and I don't know what to do. And this is, you know, and so actually just taking a moment, not to say, oh, it's a huge deal, but to just take a moment and to see it from her perspective and to say like, well, let's talk about what happens when you, you know, when you see blood, what does it, you know, what does it mean? Is it a sign of real danger or not? You know, just to take that seriously, even though it might seem to us like, oh, this is really silly. Um, it does set the foundation. I mean, she still tells me about that. Like, oh, I still remember the first time I got a paper cut. I was really scared. It wasn't a big deal. But I think looking back, it did mean something to her emotionally that she she felt that way and she had support for it. You've kind of validated my parenting a little bit with that story because my daughter, again, 18 months old, but she started walking a little bit later than we thought, but about 16 months or so she started walking and she tripped outside. It was just like the perfect, you know, event of falling where she ended up falling on the side of her face and she scratched up the side of her eye, had a really big black eye. You know, it was just one of those things, but I feel kind of almost in a way I'm like, well, good. She got her big first scratch out of the way. Like, <laughs> exactly. I know that's the thing is I was like, is it really possible you've gotten to age five without really injuring yourself? But uh, yeah, not my son though. He's uh, <laughs> it's a daily occurrence. <laughs> I'm sure I'm in for a lot more with my daughter. We actually took her to spend some time with friends over the weekend. And, you know, between the group of people we were with, there were probably about six or seven kids. My daughter was by far the youngest, but she's just a kid that never stops. And even at the end of the day, when we were leaving, all of our friends were like, our kids never did that. Like, how does she not sit down? Like, she just never stopped. Yeah. I was like, good, at yeah. least we're not crazy. I always tell people she doesn't stop and every parent's like, oh, whatever. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. being validated that way, I was like, okay, she's going to be crazy for the rest of our lives. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have one of those too. So yeah, I think it, it is really a temperament thing that some kids really are in constant motion. <laughs> Just waiting till she's old enough to do sports and we can say, go get it out in the field and yeah, we'll come yeah. back. <laughs> All right. So let's dive into the book a little bit. Uh, towards the beginning of the book, you kind of offer two promises with these methods that you have. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I really talk about rich talk is kind of a double promise. So the fact that the first promise is just about in the moment. So this kind of talk should really be interesting, more pleasurable, more enjoyable, just to make your lives more, um, you know, more engaging with your child. So if you feel like, oh, I'm bored with my child or I feel disconnected, this should help sort of create that in the moment engagement. So that's the first one. And the second one is more longer term. So meaning that longer term, you're developing your child's capacities in so many different areas. So their kindness, their empathy, their confidence, 
et cetera, their creativity. Um, and these things don't happen, obviously, with one conversation. So this is kind of an accumulation that by having many of these conversations over time, you're developing these skills. And then also in the moment, you're enjoying each other's time more. That was the interesting interesting thing to me because I think you and I, as we've been talking here already today, we've touched on the the first part of it where it's just sort of like you're engaging in the moment, you're talking, you're you're opening those doors, but there is the long-term effects that come from that that you don't see immediately, but that are so valuable to the growth of a child. Exactly, yeah, and I think that that's what's so hard to see is that, you know, it feels like, oh, well, is this conversation meaningful or not? Does it matter? You know, but just the fact that you can have these conversations about things that are small, you know, you can have conversations about rocks on the ground or conversations about, you know, socks in your drawer. Like, it doesn't have to be big things, but in terms of the ways you engage with conversations, it can do so much um, to build children's skills. So I think, you know, recognizing that and keeping that in the back of your mind can be really helpful. You have like a diagram in the book that sort of lays out some of these things and a couple of things that stood out to me uh, in the, the the second promise were, you know, be- becomes open to others who are different, uh, grows to care and understand others. And I just kept thinking about that, especially in the day we are now, there are so many people that are shut off to other opinions, what, no matter what that opinion may be, they're shut off to learning about the other side of things. And even though the other side of things may frustrate us, there's so much to it that you need to understand. So you can understand where those people are coming from and you can try to have an open dialogue with them. Yes, and I think that that's one, there's a whole chapter in the book actually about uh, openness to difference and about the fact that this is such a critical time, I would say to, you know, especially now to help children become open to difference and even to help ourselves look at our own assumptions and biases and um, the ways we think about others who are different from us. Because obviously this does start with modeling. So how are we thinking about difference? Um, And one thing I found to be super helpful is just to really start from a foundation of talking about difference as a positive. So we oftentimes think about difference like, oh, it's not so bad that they're different, you know, or it's not, you know, it's not too different from you. Uh, but actually to celebrate the fact that, yes, it is different from you. And actually, that's good. That's actually something we can all learn from. We can all grow from. So let's look at that difference. Let's understand why it happened. Let's understand how it's how we're different um, rather than saying, oh, it's not it's nothing or, you know, trying to hide it as if it's a bad thing. I um I, I wrote down a note here and I think it follows into this really. It says being responsive is a superpower as an adult. Let, let, let's talk a little bit more about that. Yes, I think just the ability to actually notice where a child is and to move from that. Um, so that might be, you know, what a child's thinking, how they're feeling, um, what's underlying what they say. So actually being able to respond to that rather than always saying, okay, well, this is what you said, so I'm just gonna take it at face value, you know? Um, I give an example of um, one thing that happened recently is my daughter, she's sort of always not sure if she wants to take lessons or not. So she wants to do something, but she's also a little worried about it. So sometimes she'll say, oh, I just don't wanna do it. Nope, nope, don't wanna do swimming lessons or, you know. But then it comes to the fact that she does wanna do it, but she's worried about not being good about it, you know, or good at it. Um, So it's like, okay, we can talk through that. Is it that you don't wanna do it really? Or is it that, you know, you do, but you're a little anxious about it. Um, so actually untangling that can really support kids to do kind of what is in their value system or to support them with their values rather than just say, oh, you said you don't want to. Okay, well, we're done. No more swimming for six months, <laughs> you know. Um, so that can be really critical, I think. 
Oh my gosh, that that is me to a T. I, I'm such a, um, I wouldn't say I'm a perfectionist, but I, I don't like to fail. So that is me to a T. Like I will not do something just out of the fear yes, of not yes, being good yes, enough yes. at it. Like, good enough for me. Like I'm sure I'd be fine for everybody exactly. else, but good. Oh my gosh, I know that thought so well. <laughs> uh, I do think a lot of people, you know, I'm I'm 41. I do think, you know, I'm, I'm the very tail end of Gen X or beginning of millennials, however you want to look at them in this weird like nether region. But so many people around my age and even older immediately go towards cell phones and social media and the internet as the source of blame for why younger people don't have the same communication skills or aren't able to get their feelings out. And the more I think about it, yeah, I'm sure those play a part, but it also has to do with the way that we've, you know, kind of I don't really know if the right word is let them use all that information, but um, I think I think you know where I'm trying to get here. I think we 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 haven't we haven't adapted to the changes in our conversation habits as well. Definitely, yes. I think um, I mean for me, I do think it plays a role, but I think we give it often much more outsized role than it should have, and just it's easy, you know, because it's there, it's visible. Kids are doing it. Yeah. Um, easy to say. Well, that's the reason. That's the reason conversations aren't working well, and it's true that. I think it's more of a symptom actually than it is a cause of thing. You know, the fact that we do see teens a lot that are disconnected. Yes, it's it's probably causing some, you know, to some degree difficulties in mental health, whatever, depending on how they're using it um, to some degree. But I do think it's also a response to the fact that, yes, we feel disconnected. So we turn to the phones for comfort or we feel isolated. So we're using these devices to have some kind of connection in some ways. So I wouldn't say, you know, I think it's, far too easy to say, oh, it's just if we fix the cell phone issue, you know, our communications would be better. Uh, maybe, but maybe not. I think it goes much deeper than that. I think there's two, you hear the conversation about, you know, trying to take the phones away from the kids or banning them from using screens. And, and I do understand that. I'm sure there's some value in limiting the amount of time, but at the same time, everything is done on those now. I mean, my, my wife is a middle school teacher everything they do is through screens. I was, our nanny is in college. She's going to be a senior in college. And we were just joking at dinner the other night before she was done for the summer about uh, how she has to turn in all of her work at the end of the semester. And it's all through, through apps and different uh, programs on the computer. And I laugh. I said, Oh, I didn't have any of those. And she goes, well, how'd you turn in your work? I was like in class. Like I had to go in person to hand it up. so, So even though she's, you know, 22 years old, 21 years old, she, she can't even fathom the idea that there's this aspect of going to class to take that test or whatever. So it's so interesting when we talk about, you know, taking these things away from our kids, you, you really can't, there's only so much you can do. Exactly. Yeah. And it's funny because I have had so many kids talk to me and even my own daughter talk to me about like, well, what does screen time even mean at this point? Mm. You know, like it's screen time. It's like, it's sort of a catch all for like, oh, I'm doing my homework. Oh, I'm turning in my homework. Oh, I'm playing Roblox. I'm, you know, zooming with someone or I'm, you know, scrolling through TikTok. It could be any of those things. And the fact is that those things are very different and actually have very different impacts psychologically and mentally um, and even, you know, in terms of our activities with people. So I definitely emphasize more of looking closely at sort of what are the activities that a child's doing on the screen? You know, are they engaging them? Are they connecting them with people? Or is it helping them learn or is it not? Um, rather than saying, let's just ban phones, let's ban screens. I think that's not, yeah, it's not useful and it's also not logical. And I think children see that, you know, that this doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, at the same time, I do say, you know, there's set a time at night where we put screens away if possible. I do think it's helpful just to kind of create that 
bedtime routine where we're not going to go back and like start scrolling through email or start, you know, whatever. I think it's a good habit for everyone, although it's, it's hard, I think, for all of us. Well, and reading through your book, too, so so many things can tie back to conversations and so many things can, can tie back to talking to our kids and letting them understand that it's okay to share their feelings and, and teaching them how to grow. And, and feelings is a big thing because we hear so much today about how the younger generation is struggling with anxiety and depression and the pressure they feel to be perfect all the time. We were just kind of talking about that uh, with your own daughter. Like they, they have all of these things going on, but so many of them don't feel comfortable sharing that. And that's, that's a problem, you know, bottling it all up and keeping it inside is not going to help. And it just creates a boiling point for so many of them. So again, these conversations that we can have with them can also help them feel comfortable to say, Hey, I'm having a really bad day. Yes, exactly. And I think that so often, yes, we want as parents, sometimes we want to be putting on the brave face for our children or saying like, Oh, we're not having a bad day. You know, everything's going fine, even if it's clearly not going fine. Mm -hmm. And I think that we think, Oh, this is, you know, helping everyone because it's like, everyone's positive. Everyone's happy. You know, you could be happy too. Um, but sometimes that positivity comes at a cost because then we're saying, Oh, we're not necessarily modeling what it's like to say, Oh, I had a really hard day this and this happened, but I'm, you know, I'm hopeful in this way, or I'm going to work through it in this way. Actually trying to talk through that process really can open the fact up to children that like, yes, they can have bad days too. They can talk through it um, and feel as though it's not a shame or it's not shameful to do so. I, I want to go back to something else you said before about having something that can engage in conversation is having your kid teach you something, having them show you something. And I was just thinking like, I don't want to lie to my child, but at the same time, if lying means I'm going to pretend I don't know how to I don't know, play Monopoly and they can teach me how to play Monopoly that day. Yeah. Like that's such an easy way to go about it. And I think that's, it kind of ties into just the feelings talk too. Like, even if you're not having a great day, if you could just open the door, you can really, you know, even if it does mean a little white lie about how great you're feeling, you can open right. the door for them and have them, you know, open and, and have that engagement and conversation with you. Exactly. And I think too, you can be kind of creative as well. Like I, um, I have that Monopoly example. I like that because I, I have a monopoly obsessed child in my house. Um, oh, so you can't break that from them yet. I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> but, um, but it's funny because I think so often we think, oh, we have to just pretend we don't know something, you know, to help kids teach us. And that's not always the case. So sometimes like I, my son is only five um, and he obviously doesn't know how to play monopoly better than I do. Um, but sometimes he does make up his own rules. So then I say like, oh, you know, why don't you teach me that new rule you've made? I don't know that rule. You know, can you teach it to me? Or like, you made up this game with the cars. Like, I don't know what that game is. Like, so actually you can find these moments, even with young children, where you authentically don't know. Like, you know, it's like, oh, you made up this word? What is that word? You know, can you tell me what? And so it's like, you're both on the same page. You both know it's a made up word or it's a made up game, but you're still saying like, you actually don't know what it is. And so you want this explanation. So I think that can be a moment too, of just, you know, genuine curiosity. Well, Rebecca, I, I love this book and I'm so glad that I'm coming across it now because my daughter is getting to that point where she's like, we're starting to hear some words. We're starting to hear a couple little phrases pop up there and, and, you know, she'll do that thing that little kids do where they stare at you very intently and they're just blabbering about what you think is nothing, but you know, it means something so serious to exactly. them. But I, I'm so as, you know, as 
annoying, if you will, that this may be at some points in my life. I'm so ready to have these conversations with my child because I just, I look forward to this. Uh, and this book is going to be very helpful for us. The Art of Talking with Children, The Simple Keys to Nurturing Kindness, Creativity, and Confidence in Kids. Uh, Rebecca, do you have a place that people can go if they want to find out more about you and your work or this book? Yes, definitely. They can go to my website, which is just RebeccaRoland.com uh, with two C's and two L's. Um, and I actually have there a weekly newsletter that I've started with tips, strategies, you know, questions that I'm taking from readers as well. So I'd love your feedback there as well. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much, A, for reaching out to me uh, so I could discover this book and B, for giving me some of your time. I, I so appreciate that. Uh, and, you know, I wish you the best up there in Boston. Stay cool this summer. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is great. <laughs> Big thank you to Rebecca for her time. Her book, The Art of Talking with Children, The Simple Keys to Nurturing Kindness, Creativity, and Confidence in Kids is available now wherever you get your books. Definitely worth the read. It is just chock full of important information. And thank you to all of you for listening. I really appreciate your time. Until next time, be well.